This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. Holy God, faithful and unchanging, enlarge our minds with the knowledge of your truth and draw us more deeply into the mystery of your love that we may truly worship you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. I believe that one of the hidden longings of every human heart is to participate in a communion of perfect love. Every human being has been designed to share in this circle of love. Of course, we tend to pursue this fellowship of love in very distorted and broken and even destructive ways. And even for those of us who are in good, healthy relationships, those relationships are so often clouded by pain and by disappointment, and inevitably those will be severed by death. And God invites us into something much richer, much deeper, much sweeter than that. As it happens, this Sunday is Trinity Sunday for those very few of you, all too few of you who follow the Christian year, And it's a bit of a miracle because it is Trinity Sunday both in the Western and in the Eastern churches. How rarely does that ever happen? I'm convinced there's going to be a second coming, but I think there may need to be a third coming several weeks later for the Orthodox, who always just seem to be a little bit out of sync with the rest of us. But today, amazingly, we're all together celebrating the mystery of the Holy Trinity, which is at the very center and at the very heart of the Christian faith. Few, if any of us, are called to be professional theologians, but every single person here has been summoned into the reality of the divine love, into the reality of the Holy Trinity, and each of us are called by God and taken by the hand and drawn in by him to taste and to see and to know the love of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And I want to say that this is the very life of the gospel. We're not talking about something obscure and incidental, like it's a bit of an appendix. Maybe it's something that's vital and necessary, and we need the professionals to make sure that no one screws that up, but has little relevance to our lives with God. Actually, the gospel itself is us knowing and experiencing the love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, knowing the Father as our own Father who has adopted us, knowing Jesus the Son as our Savior who has redeemed us, and knowing God's Holy Spirit as our comforter and advocate and guide. We care about the Trinity in this church, not because we're theology nerds who love to read old dusty books and argue with one another. We care about the Trinity because we love God. This is who God is. And we hunger and we thirst to know our creator in all the fullness of his three-personed being. Now, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but that should not disturb you. The word biblical is not even in the Bible. That doesn't stop anyone from using that word. But Trinity is a word that faithfully describes what the scriptures reveal to us. That God is one. And this one God reveals himself to us in three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God, not 
one-third of God, and somehow you add them up, and they make God each is fully God, and yet the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit. That's my very brief definition of this doctrine, but I want to say that the truth of the Trinity is a mystery far beyond human comprehension, and there is no analogy to it in creation. The minute anyone says to you, the Trinity is like, and then they start talking about eggs with yolks and whites and shells, or clovers with three leaves, or water and liquid, solid and gas state, you are guaranteed to hear some obscure heresy come out of their mouth next. The Trinity is something without any comparison in God's creation, because God is utterly beyond human understanding. And that's why down through the centuries, the church has always been very modest and very careful in what she says about the Trinity. And these creeds that we confess are an attempt not to explain the mystery, but to guard the mystery. We confess one God in three persons. And our great desire is to actually encounter this God, not to take him apart and try to figure out how he works. There's a great danger in this that it's about playing with words and concepts and theories, and it all becomes quite unreal in our minds, and then we start cultivating this knowledge that puffs up rather than builds up. We all want to be small and humble and here to worship and adore and praise and encounter God. It turns out that God is not really interested in being strapped down to the table and studied by detached people in white coats. That's a situation and a way of approaching God where we feel in control and we feel like we are the knowers. The Bible reveals a God who is gloriously active and alive, and he's reaching down to encounter us. And the Gospel of John, of which Elizabeth read a short portion for us, is the story of that encounter of the triune God who has made contact, who has reached out and touched his creation, who incredibly has become part of his creation, as the word is made flesh. I was sad to see last week that not a single person raised their hands and acknowledged Numbers as their favorite book in the Bible. It's a good thing Numbers don't have emotions because I did feel quite sorry for that book. But I would guess if we asked about the Gospel of John today, quite a few hands would go up because many of us have a special love for that Gospel in particular because it was our entryway into a relationship with Jesus. That's how I came to know Christ myself when I was a pimply 18-year-old. John 10, verse 9, where Jesus says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved and will go in and will go out and find pasture. And it was that particular verse that the Holy Spirit used to open my heart to the reality and wonder of the gospel. And John has often been used as a first book that we give to new Christians or to seekers. And there's a reason for that because John comes across as an easy and a simple book. It's not like Paul's letters with their long and involved sentences and subclauses and semicolons and very complex multisyllabic words. John writes short sentences and he uses simple words. 
And if any of us understood Greek, we would understand that John is not writing as a native Greek speaker like Luke, for example, is. He's a GSL speaker, and his Greek is a bit clumsy, and his grammar sometimes is a bit off. But all this simplicity in John is actually quite deceptive. I think John is actually the deepest and most profound book in the entire Bible. And those of us who've waded into John at the beginning of our Christian life could spend decades swimming into those waters. From his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. John says about Jesus in the opening verses, the first chapter of his gospel. And in the course of this gospel, as you read through John, you will experience what the theologian David F. Ford describes as an abundance of glory healing, light, life, truth, faithfulness, joy, and love. John is a gospel of fullness and plenitude and abundant grace. The words we heard a few moments ago, these verses from John 16, are part of Jesus' farewell discourse. He's meeting with his disciples in the upper room just before his arrest and eventual execution, sharing his final words. And it's a somber, and it's a sober occasion. And even though you can tell the disciples don't really understand what's going on, they must have felt the weight of what Jesus was saying and paid very close attention. And yet, through this very serious discourse, you sense a vein of deep joy in God. This awareness that even though Jesus must suffer and his disciples are going to suffer after Jesus, yet in the end, all will be well. Because everything is moving out according to the Father's great ends. We hear that now in Jesus' words, but the disciples are filled with grief when they finally realize that their beloved rabbi is leaving them. And they don't understand that Jesus' ascension to heaven means that now the Holy Spirit can be poured out from the Father's right hands. So Jesus tells them in verse 16, I have much more to say to you. There is a lot more I wish I could talk about, but it's more than you can bear. The path of discipleship is not going to be easy for these disciples or for anyone else because it turns out that following Jesus means picking up his cross and bearing the hatred of the same world that hated and crucified him. And each of these disciples, other than Judas, is going to learn this lesson, not in abstract theory, but in painful personal experience. But right now, in the upper room, they are not ready. The cross, seen in isolation, is too much for anyone to handle. And God's call to suffer and die with Jesus is too terrifying for any disciple to embrace. And these disciples are only going to be ready to bear this calling after the resurrection, and after Pentecost. Because it's only then that they will be so filled and immersed and plunged in love and joy and hope that they would gladly endure anything for the sake of proclaiming the name of Jesus. And that happens, and it can only happen, after the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit descends on these praying, waiting disciples as tongues of fire, the Spirit whom Jesus had promised. When he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. 
The great teacher is not going to leave his church for whom he's about to die. He's not going to leave her fumbling and groping in the dark, left to try to figure things out ourselves by our best guesses and speculation, stumbling our way towards God. Jesus promises the church an infallible and all-knowing guide, the spirit who searches all things, even the deep things of God. This is the spirit who is with the church now. Only the infinite can plumb the depths of the infinite. And only the very spirit of God knows everything that there is in God. There are no secrets that God has which the Holy Spirit does not know about. No hidden parts of God to which the Spirit who rests on us now does not have access. This is the Spirit who has been given to guide the church into all truth. Truth not as theory, not as abstractions, not as ideas, but as life. And Jesus has sent his Spirit to guide us, to grip us strongly by the elbow and steer us into what God wants for us, into a real encounter with God as our creator and friend and father. The Spirit has been given to show us and to set us in our right place in God's creation and to put us in the correct spot on the stage to play our own little role in God's great drama of redemption. We have the Spirit as our guide. He will guide you. What a promise that Jesus gives to this group of very ordinary believers. For the most part, blue-collar men, the kind of people that the priests and the rabbis would have despised as those who knew nothing about the law. And in these very Gospels, in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, The disciples frequently demonstrate to us how thick their heads are, how slow they are to understand, how stupid and foolish they often are. And one of the great miracles of history is that, how could it be that those very same men produced this book that has changed the world? The only possible explanation is God's gift of the Holy Spirit, who is fulfilling Jesus promised to guide his church into all truth. The gift of the Spirit, the vital, essential, empowering gift of the Spirit at Pentecost. But it would be a mistake to understand Pentecost as a new administration, like the previous prime minister has stepped aside and now there's someone in his place and the Spirit's rubbing his hands thinking, finally, After centuries of being on the sidelines, I get to bring out my plans and ideas. He will not speak on his own, Jesus says. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is to come. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the three members of the Trinity, are always working in perfect harmony. And that's not because one member, say the father, is in charge and has authority and orders the other two what to do and they obey him. There's no such thing as submission within the Trinity because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share a single 
will. And though it is appropriate to speak of certain aspects of salvation as belonging to the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit, it's also true that wherever one member of the Trinity is present, the other two are also there. Wherever the Father is working, the Spirit and the Son are present. Wherever the Son is, the Father and the Spirit are there too. And wherever the Spirit is poured out and working and active, close beside him are the Father and the Son. In fact, far from working independently, having his own personal private mission, all of the Spirit's activity is being done with the goal that the Son be lifted up and glorified and magnified in the church. Verse 14, he will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. The Spirit's great delight is to magnify the Son and to cause Jesus to be loved and trusted and worshipped and obeyed for our hearts to be opened and enlarged to see Christ the Son as supremely wonderful and awesome and to open our lips. It's the Spirit who is opening our lips to cry out with all the redeemed, worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. The Spirit is the great choir master gathering us all together, teaching us to sing this song in loud harmony together for the glory of the Son. And just as the great proof, according to Paul, the real test of whether someone has the Spirit of God is whether she is able to say from the heart, Jesus is Lord. We're impressed with no other evidence than joyful submission to the Lordship of Jesus. And the same is true of the church, that there's no genuine evidence of the work of the Spirit in the church or in any ministry except Jesus being glorified. Frank Bartleman was a journalist who was present in 1907 at Azusa Street in Los Angeles, which is where the revivals happened that birthed the global Pentecostal movement, which now numbers somewhere around 600 million people worldwide. And Bartleman was the one who wrote the first accounts to publish and promote this wonderful work that God was doing in L.A. And he later wrote, asking if there was such a thing as a Christless Pentecost, a Pentecost without Jesus. And Bartleman wrote, we may not hold a doctrine or seek an experience except in Christ. Many are willing to seek power in order to perform miracles, draw attention and adoration of the people to themselves, thus robbing Christ of his glory and making a fair showing in the flesh. That was happening in 1907 already, and of course we often see that today around the genuine work of the Holy Spirit. He went on to say, any work that exalts the Holy Spirit or the gifts above Jesus is sure to end in fanaticism. Whatever causes us to exalt and love Jesus 
is safe. Whatever causes us to love and exalt Jesus is safe. And we not only want to be open, we want to eagerly desire every gift of the Holy Spirit that helps us as a body love and exalt Jesus. The reverse, he wrote, will ruin all. The Holy Ghost is a great light, but focused always on Jesus for his revealing. Brothers and sisters, if we are really filled and controlled and aligned with the Holy Spirit, our hearts will burn with the same desire he has that Christ might be preeminent in everything. Because everything that the Holy Spirit pours out on the church, beginning with the wonders of Pentecost to every day's tiny advance in grace, everything the Spirit gives us is something that he is receiving from the Son exalted in heaven and passing along to Jesus' church. And the exalted Son is only passing on to the Spirit what he himself is receiving from the Father at whose right hand he sits. Verse 15, all that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. All that the Father has is mine. Note that word carefully. Everything that God the Father has Jesus has also, because the Father has shared unreservedly everything that he has, and much more, everything that he is with the Son. If you would draw a circle of what belongs in the Son's possession, there would be no boundaries to that circle. There is literally nothing inside creation or outside of creation that is not in the right hands of Jesus, the Son. And here's what is truly boggling. The Son is not sitting at the right hand of God, greedily hoarding this for himself. He takes all that he has from God, and he places it in the hands of his Holy Spirit, and he sends the Holy Spirit down to earth with this mission. Share all that the Father has given me with the host of the redeemed, with these sinners for whom I have died, with whom I have been risen from the dead, share it with them. Everything in that unbounded circle that Jesus possesses has been given to us through the Holy Spirit. All things are ours in Christ Jesus because we belong to Christ. And that limitless circle is shared with the church of Jesus and with every single sinner who believes in Christ's name, so that as Jesus has promised, rivers of living water would flow from within us. Salvation is simply this. In the end, it is simply this. The triune God sharing his entire self to bring us into communion with him. And everything, the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, Pentecost, forgiveness, 
adoption, justification, all those things serve that great end. The triune God sharing his entire self to bring you and me into communion with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And there's this beautiful Trinitarian order to all that God does. From above to to below, and from below back up to above. All things come from the Father. And they flow through the Son, and they come to us by the Holy Spirit. All of God's grace, all of God's riches, all of God's treasure, God's very self. And then that is mirrored back up to God as we, by the Spirit, in Christ, bring all things back to the Father. In trust and prayer and worship, we ourselves are ascending by the power of the Spirit through Christ up to the Father. Grace is just the triune God's continuous outpouring from above down to us. And what that awakens within us is the beginning of a continuous outpouring of ourselves back up to God in wonder, love, and praise. That is our eternal destiny. That is the communion of perfect love that God has not only created every human being for, he has redeemed you and me for, to experience, to receive, to taste, and then to echo back up to God. That's not just for the far distant future. The Spirit has been given to the church now. In these latter days, in this in-between time, The Spirit is present among us. It's very hard to believe sometimes, because we too are ordinary people, slow to understand, foolish, disobedient, sinful. And yet, there's this hidden work of the Holy Spirit going on among us, renewing us each day, taking the things of God, the power, the presence, the grace of God himself, all those things that Christ has redeemed us to experience and pouring those into our hearts and lives. So shall we open ourselves up to God now and pray and ask that he would deepen our experience of his triune love? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that through Christ we may indeed call you our Father. We thank you and we bless you that you have created and redeemed and rescued us to experience this awesome love. We who were sinners, who were living estranged from you and in enmity towards you, somehow, miraculously, by your inscrutable grace, you have redeemed us and transformed us. Also, you can pour out your lavish grace upon us. Father, we adore you. Jesus, we adore you. Spirit, we adore you. And may all the grace that you've poured out on us arise in thanksgiving back towards you. And may you alone be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.